Knowing that my brother uh, Anthony Metheny was going to be here today, pastor over in Radford, Virginia, uh, I had a mind to ask him to stand here and preach uh, instead of me, which no doubt would have been a blessing, but uh, he's on a little bit of a break. Uh, so I thought, would I want to be asked on my vacation to preach? Maybe, you know, it has happened before, but, but we, we spared him from that. And then last night I got a text from Phil Newton saying they may be with us today. So I almost had them just double, you know, back to back. Let's, let's just get both the brothers in the pulpit. Um, I do love these men, love the congregations that the Lord's entrusted to them and the fellow elders to pastor and, uh, that you would be blessed to hear from them, but you get the inglorious opportunity to be bludgeoned by me yet again. So here we go. Um, I want, to, I want to see if you're one of the people in the in crowd or just on the outside of it or maybe far removed from it. You think back, for those who are adulting, think back to your kind of elementary, middle school days. Were you, were you in the in crowd? Were you one of the accepted people and was your subjective barometer the measure by which other people got accepted or rejected, or were you on the receiving end of somebody else's subjective barometer? Are you in the, are you in, the in crowd? Maybe for some of our young people, you feel today very left out. The sobering news is when you get older, that doesn't always go away. Some of the kids in the room may look around and feel like, man, I can't wait to be an adult because then I won't have to put up with people leaving me out. But that's just not the way the world works. It's a sad world and it's full of sinful people. and We oftentimes are left out. Have you ever been left out of something or a particular moment that, that you thought you would have definitely been invited to. And so then a little deeper sting settles down in your heart. Maybe you tried to play it off like it really didn't bother you, but in reality you suffer from the sadness of being forgotten. Maybe you suffer from, I think, what the kids call FOMO, uh, the fear of being left out. Social media is all the rage, and um, on the various platforms... Our young people have been conditioned, really discipled, shaped and formed to live with the constant fear of missing out. Maybe there's already a new slogan for it, and I don't don't even know what it is yet. You know, some people live their whole life wondering what if. What if I had not done this? What if I had decided to do that instead? Where would the path have led? Where where would I even be today? What if I had gone to a different school or secondary school, college? What if I moved to a different city? What if I married a different person? What if I had been born into a different family with a different mother tongue in a different country? FOMO, fear of missing out, shows up in a lot of ways. And though it's today a popular acronym and social media's explosion has made people feel it deeply, even if they don't use the acronym. Because we're constantly seeing what looks like 
a lot of other people having a great time in a wonderful setting doing fun stuff that we never get to enjoy. And we're being conditioned by it. Our psyche is being shaped, even imperceptibly most of the time, to think we're missing out. She goes to all the fun stuff. She goes to all the exciting places. He knows about all the latest controversies and all the literature on the whole subject and all the people who are talking about it know who he is too. Maybe you feel more alone and less experienced and less cultured and less informed than everybody around you. At its worst, maybe you just feel less. Everybody else has it together. You just don't and you can't. You feel less, not only left out. The fear of being nothing at all. The fear of not only not being there or not knowing that, but deeper. The fear of just being forgotten. And maybe you compensate for that. Perhaps you're already better at being a good disciple of that fear than you have ever even thought long enough to articulate. You do believe things that you cannot yet say. Have you thought enough about your deep fears so that you have articulated? Maybe you're projecting or trying to project yourself as somebody who never misses out. You're always in the in crowd. Well, that or feeling left out without trying to compensate for it never satisfies. So what happens? Depression sets in. The misery of the mundane confirms all your fears. You're missing out. And there's nothing you can do to satisfy that itch, no matter how hard you try or how deep into the abyss of despair you sink. If anybody had a reason for being sad that they were left out, it was one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest friends. My surname maybe came from his name, Thomas. While all of his buddies were taking selfies with the risen Jesus and putting it all over their social media platforms, Thomas managed to miss out on the greatest moment in human history. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Read about this story picking up in verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24, the voice of the living God. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. 
Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help before we walk our way through this passage? Father, we boldly and because of the blood of Jesus confidently ask that no matter what else we may miss out on in this lifetime, please do not let us miss the blessings of a life-changing, life-shaping, life-satisfying encounter with the risen Jesus by faith. In fact, I ask that you would spare us from everything that would distract us from him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's two parts to today's passage as I see it, verses 24 and 25, and then verse 26 to 29. The first part, you have missing Thomas. And in the second part, you have what I'm going to argue is missionary Thomas. How do you go out from missing the risen Jesus to spending the rest of your life telling everybody about the risen Jesus? Well, there's an inflection point right in the middle of the passage. So first, verse 24 and 25, missing Thomas. We're told in verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, which means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Pastor Matt talked to us about that revelation of the risen Jesus last week. Thomas was not there. So in verse 24, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This man was, as we're told, one of the 12. He was in the in crowd. Thomas was in when it came to hanging out with the most important person who's ever walked the face of the planet. He was one of Jesus' disciples. But when it came to being at the most important moment, of all moments, Thomas was nowhere to be found. We don't know where he was at, and I think John on purpose doesn't tell us. We can, of course, conjecture and speculate. Maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. But here's what we do know. We know that all 10 of his closest friends did not miss out. When Jesus showed up and showed off, he literally presented his glorified nail-pierced hands to them. You can see it in the passage for yourself. And he presented to them his glorified spear-pierced side. But Thomas was not there. Didymus, as I mentioned, and John wants us to see it again here, in verse 24, means, as I said, twin. He had a twin sibling. Maybe he was visiting his twin brother after the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, it had been three days. Maybe he's verbally processing with his family. Maybe they were right. Maybe he wasted the last three years of his life following somebody all over the dusty streets and byways of Palestine because he thought that that man was the Messiah that God promised in the pages of the Old Testament. Only for that man to have been killed a few days earlier. Maybe he wasn't there because he was off by himself trying to put his thoughts back together again. Maybe he was like David in the Old Testament. At the lowest point of David's life and labors, David was all alone when he should have been in the company of more people. But David missed out because he was at his house looking at porn when he should have been at war with God's people against God's enemies. 
What was Thomas doing? Maybe it was an amoral moment, not sinful. He just wasn't with the guys when they had this amazing moment of seeing the risen Jesus. So as I see it, there's several angles through which we could, and I think from at least one, should understand this passage. From one angle, he's beating himself up. Why was I so stupid that I didn't go when the guys invited me? I missed out on seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Another angle, he could blame his friends. Why didn't they invite me? I could have been there. Is it that they don't really like me? Maybe they invited him and he stayed back. Maybe they didn't invite him and he felt left out. And then from another angle, maybe the most stinging, searing of all, if this is it, he could blame Jesus, right? He could have blame shifted the spotlight like the first Adam in the garden. If Jesus is really alive from the dead, like really, really alive from the dead, and my friends didn't see an apparition or a ghost or a figment of their imagination, but they really saw the same Jesus who died three days earlier on the cross, if he's really Lord and God, why didn't he wait until I was there too? Does Jesus not care all that much about me? Was I dead weight among his real disciples who he really cared about and really loved? Instead of fear of missing out, maybe it was the sadness of actually being left out. If you've ever been forgotten by people who you thought loved you, then you know the pain that can generate. You can try to play it off. You can put a smile on your face, but only inside your heart breaks. Maybe Thomas thought Jesus forgot about him. In the most special, meaningful moment of all. Imagine how Thomas might have felt without that much conjecture in verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. That's 10 people. And that's actually an imperfect active. Were saying. I, I can almost hear the inner circle. You, you remember Peter, James, and John had their special inner circle with Jesus among the 12 disciples? I, I can almost hear Peter, James, and John. You know, they had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw some things that nobody else saw. What did it sound like when John lays emphasis on the disciples were saying active to him, you should have been there. It was amazing. We were in this room, we were all by ourselves, the doors were locked and just, he just showed up. He, he didn't come through the door, just boom, there he was. We all thought maybe we're seeing a ghost. Our eyes may have been playing tricks on us, something that wasn't real, but it was him, it was really him. And then can't you just imagine Peter? Thomas, Thomas, check out this selfie that we took with Jesus. When he revealed himself, oh, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe James said, no, 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 no. Don't look at that one. Look at this one. His is blurry, but Jesus is actually holding the phone in this one. It's a lot more clear. Peter's hands was shaking too bad to get a clear picture. All we know is they kept saying it to him. Over and over and over. How long did they keep saying it to him? Eight days. You ever had a long week? 
I'm not sure how you would respond if you were Thomas in verse 25. Maybe you would say, praise the Lord. Guys, I'm so happy for you. What a privilege. What an honor. I rejoice with you that you had the blessing of seeing the risen Lord of glory. Maybe that's how you would respond, but not me. Not Thomas. Probably not the rest of the disciples either had they been in Thomas's shoes. So in verse 24, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in verse 25, he has the wrong perspective. That's not how Thomas responds. Before I read verse 25 again, I'm one of those who thinks that Thomas has been given a bad rap in church history. He's known, as you know, as doubting Thomas. It's because of verse 25, and I see how we get there, and I think it might be, you know, a partially accurate moniker. But how do you think the other 10 disciples would have responded if they were the one that was left out instead of him? How do you think you would have responded? if you were in Thomas's shoes. Thomas is only mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Four of those are in the list of the disciples. The other four, you don't know where they're at and what they're about, but everybody knows about this one. The one time he says something that all of us would have said and the other disciples would have said had the roles been reversed. I'm not so sure it's bona fide doubt, doubting Thomas as much as it is dejection, brokenness, sorrow. It's self-absorbed and I don't doubt that. Maybe it is doubt, but I don't know that it's only doubt. He said to them, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Hence, doubting Thomas. I want to remind you that 72 hours prior to this, there was only one disciple who saw nails actually go through his hands and a spear actually go into his dead cadaver, John. There were a lot of people who watched it. None of the disciples save John watched it. It appears that Thomas had heard enough first-hand eyewitness testimonies in the 72 hours before this moment to know the gruesome, gory death of Jesus, the man he walked with and listened to talk every day for three and a half years. Although he wasn't there to watch the horror of Jesus's horrible murder, he knew this much from verse 25, nails, spear. Unless I see those nail prints, unless I touch those hands, unless I put my hand in that side. I think John's point is, Thomas knew that Jesus' legs weren't broken, like the two men on either side of Jesus who were also crucified. Thomas knew that Jesus died before the sledge smashed the femur bones of Jesus, which did not happen because he was already dead. Thomas knew that a soldier had, quote, verse 25, pierced his side. For three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Thomas had envisioned the brutality of the death of the one that he had followed every single day for the past three plus years. Even if Thomas had tried to shut his brain off, we prayed for a portion of our country 
that today can't shut their brain off from the horror that happened in their midst. Thomas couldn't shut his brain off. Even if he tried not to think about the death of Jesus, he's not even three full days removed from what happened to the man he thought was the Messiah. He couldn't keep his mind's eye from scanning the body of Jesus and seeing the pierced hands in his mind's eye and his feet and his wounded side. Thomas was sure of one thing in the whole world. Jesus was dead. Pastor Matt mentioned the illustration last week about those tearjerker moments that we all love and I'll never not be moved to tears by and I don't cry easily. When the deployed soldier returns for the surprise visit to the family at some big packed out stadium or auditorium and the family has no idea mom or dad or sibling is coming back and then the presentation and the kid runs and the big embrace and it's just one of those, they weren't expecting it, you weren't expecting it, everybody's thrilled by it. But imagine if a family, God forbid, had inadvertently gotten news a week ago that their deployed loved one isn't coming back. Casualty of war, folded flag, we're so sorry for your loss. The battlefield claimed another. And to amplify the sorrow, imagine if everybody in that loved one's battalion called to give their own personal condolences to the family for their brother who has fallen. Now imagine the utter dismay and discombobulation mixed at the same time with this inexplicable and confounded jubilation that would rush down the spine of a wife who saw her deployed husband surprise her at halftime in the arena if that loved one showed up to give her a hug by surprise. This is what the 10 disciples were privileged to see. Their loved one was alive from the dead and Thomas wasn't there for the moment when Jesus chose to reveal himself. Did he doubt? Yes, verse 25. Unless this happens, I will not believe. To not believe something is by definition to doubt. So yes, I think Doubting Thomas may be an okay moniker, but I also think there's more to it. This man's dejected. You don't feel like your closest loved one died three days ago, unless unaware to me that's happened to somebody in this room. He's dejected. But he's also dejected because everybody else was at the party. Everybody else got the selfies and the autographs. And he was at home missing out. I think part of Thomas's quandary includes, did Jesus ever even really care about me anyway? He sure didn't look like it. Maybe he cared a lot more about all the other people, but not Thomas. To add insult to injury, Thomas hears nothing but stories of the other disciples' experiences with the risen Jesus for eight days. Look at verse 26, after eight days. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Again inside, Thomas with them. 
those guys couldn't have shut up for eight days. Now, he was with them now. He wasn't going to miss out again. It's hard to imagine the other disciples had stopped talking morning, noon, or night. Somebody took a new shift when somebody else took a nap. I wouldn't stop talking if I had seen the risen Jesus. When you see somebody come back from death, it is well worth talking about. The hopes and fears of the other ten were dissolving into Christ-centered sight and faith. Jesus Could it be? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was alive and they knew it. They saw him for themselves as we sing around here. You have been raised and nothing can take away our hope in you. That's how 10 men felt, not Thomas. Which leads from missing Thomas to what I've called missionary Thomas. Verse 26 to 29. Let's reread that portion and then we'll back up and consider portions of it. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. A few things I want to draw out from this portion and I'll get to the missionary focus is first in verse 26 that peace is not a cosmic ooze that God pours out onto you like a potion. Peace is a person. Verse 26. Peace be with you. Something I think we often miss when we read the Bible is the affect, the emotion, the desires, the feels. I mean, if you take a look at verse 26, there's a lot going on here. The first thing Jesus does is not remove fear, but reorder it. He elevates fear, if you ask me, by isolating it to himself. The doors in verse 26 are shut. That word in the New Testament often means locked. The footnote in my translation of the New American Standard indicates that it might better be translated as locked instead of shut. It's the exact same word used in Matthew 25 and Acts 5 to mean forever locked in Matthew 25. In the parable of the 10 virgins, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 25, 10, while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was, same word, shut. And we know in Matthew 25, Jesus goes on to be crystal clear that that is a forever locked out of Christ's salvation. That's why Matthew uses that word. In a similar kind of context, in Acts chapter 5, we read this in verse 23, but the officers who came did not find them. That's Peter and John in prison where they had locked them the day before. They didn't find them in prison, so they returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, nobody was inside. Locked. That's the word John uses. 
So these 11 disciples, now Thomas is with them, are barricaded inside of a room. No doubt they have to suppose that they may be next on the hit list for the crucifixion next Friday afternoon. And then Jesus shows up in the middle of the room. Fears don't go down, fears go up. This is what he said to them. And if there, were, if there was not a heightened fear, then what Jesus said makes no sense. Peace with you. Peace is a person. Some translations render it peace to you, some peace with you, some peace be with you. Jesus is letting them know that peace, true peace, is not found in man-made security systems, but in a person in himself. And I love you enough to say to you something I've bathed in prayer and been aiming at to say this whole time thus far. Until your soul is satisfied in Jesus, Jesus' peace will always be elusive to you. You will never have the peace for which you so desperately long until your soul is immersed in the fountain of the bounty of Christ. This is clearly one of Jesus' main points in his resurrection sermons. This is his third sermon in about eight verses. They've all been the exact same message. Maybe he's trying to get a point across. Verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then in our verse, verse 26, peace be with you. Three sermons, same message. The sadness of being left out and the fear of missing out doesn't get satisfied by getting more of what everybody else is talking about. Thomas heard people talk for eight days. These men had been talking a lot and they're still afraid, afraid enough to barricade themselves in a room. You'll never have enough experiences in this world or knowledge of the latest issues for you to be satisfied. You'll never have enough safety from your fears or acceptance with your peers to feel that you've made it. But it's absolutely amazing what a fresh encounter with the risen Jesus can do for your soul. I like to picture verses 26 to 29 as the disciples singing the Advent chorus, O little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Do you know about beyond understanding peace? Not changing your circumstances, but God changing you. The Lord Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat in the midst of the storm when everybody else is scared for their life. Do you know a beyond understanding peace, an otherworldly peace, a supernaturally given peace, the Holy Spirit wrought fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace deep in your soul? His name is Jesus. Peace with you. So not only is peace a person, but I want you to see in verses 27 and 28 how tender Jesus is with the weak. Now, with the self-righteous, he has a very different message. But I don't think Thomas was a self-righteous doubter. I think he was a weak, conscienced doubter. Verse 27, 28, he said to Thomas, that is, Jesus said to Thomas, reach, see, 
Reach, put. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Look at the object of Thomas's faith in verse 27. Reach your hands. See my hands. Reach, touch my side. Put your hand in my side. <laughs> Some suggest that Jesus may have been an apparition. You know, the liberal scholars say there's no way he actually got up from the dead. This was some kind of Gnostic spirit ghost situation and not an actual physical body. Not a physical, not flesh and blood, not a risen body. This verse absolutely decimates such a heresy. Thomas touched him, felt his wounds. Thomas knew that the body of Jesus was raised the very same body that had died three days, in this case, 11 days prior. All the disciples saw the pierced body of Jesus alive from the dead. The object of saving faith is what is important. It doesn't matter how much faith you have if your faith is in the wrong object. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. We don't put faith in faith. Do you really, really believe? Did you mean it? Were you sincere when you prayed your prayer? That's almost altogether irrelevant. I said almost altogether irrelevant. The point is not the strength or the size of your faith. It's not what you can conjure up. It's the object of your faith. If you put a mustard seed size of faith in the resurrected Jesus, you're saved forever. If you put a mountain size of faith in the size of your faith, you're damned forever. Jesus is the object of Thomas's faith. John, the writer of this gospel, was actually in the room that day. He saw Thomas touch the glorified, pierced hands of Jesus. He watched as Thomas put his hand, we're told, not his finger, in the spear-wounded side of the glorified Jesus. You know what John writes a long time after he wrote, uh, saw that moment? He writes in 1 John 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and touched with our hands. I think John touched him too. I think John touched him too. Maybe in the previous passage where Jesus gives that invitation to the 10, maybe again in this passage. Is it real? Is he alive? And under inspiration in 1 John, he writes, we touched him with our hands. How will you and I join Thomas in believing upon the risen Jesus. It's not gonna be by our own power. Jesus in this passage is not only the object of faith, he's actually also the author of faith. Look at what he commands Thomas to do. Verse 27, do not be unbelieving. That's an imperative, that's a command, but believing. See, Jesus actually creates the faith that he requires. He commands Thomas to no longer doubt, but to rest by faith in him. The way faith is birthed in you, in Jesus, is by Jesus giving it to you. The spirit of Jesus causes you to believe the gospel of Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day, he rose again from the dead, as all the scriptures speak of. 
Jesus begins and he finishes true faith. He is the author and perfecter of faith, Hebrews 12, 2. He commanded Thomas's faith, and it happened. In Luke 24, the risen Jesus appears to these same people, the disciples. He commences to unfold for them how the entire Bible is about him and his gospel labors. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. He tells two other guys, O foolish men, is low of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, Old Testament prophets, based on their writing, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? That's the gospel of Jesus. You should get that from the Old Testament. So in Luke 24, 44, when he talks to the disciples, he says to them, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole Old Testament is about me. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and taught his closest friends that the whole Bible is about the gospel and the glory of Jesus. And even after he rose from the dead and appeared to them and bathed them in the Christocentric truth of Scripture, they still did not get it. After the risen Jesus preached the gospel and glory of Jesus to the 11 disciples, the Bible tells us in the next two verses, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Luke 24 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. I can assure you that the sermon by the risen Jesus, about the risen Jesus, from the scriptures that are all about Jesus, is way better than the sermon I'm preaching today, and there will be no uh, disagreement with that. But like Thomas, and like the 11 men who ate fish with Jesus after he got up from the dead and touched his body, you will not believe until he commands it. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I wonder if God Almighty is doing John 6, in this room right now. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Is God reaching his almighty hand down out of heaven into your little heart and wooing you to the risen Christ? That's why John wrote this passage about Thomas's belief until he opens your mind. Luke 24, 45, you're not going to understand the gospel even if Jesus preaches it to you, risen from the dead. When Jesus is presented to you as alive from the dead and the spirit of Jesus injects the gift of faith, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, faith is a gift from God. When you're regenerated, made alive from the dead by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, here's what will happen. You will be believing. You will thrust your soul upon the risen Jesus as your only hope in life and death. That's verse 28. How does Thomas answer after Jesus commands his faith? My Lord and my God. It's the title of the sermon, my Lord and my God. That's my prayer for each of us today. All unbelief, all dejection, all sorrow of being left out or fear of missing out, it was gone for Thomas in this moment. Thomas was finally and forever satisfied in verse 28 in the bounty of the risen Jesus. A wooden rendering of verse 28 would sound like this. 
the Lord of me and the God of me. He didn't know what the other 10 were saying anymore because all he could see is Christ and all his hope was bound up in him. He is my Lord. He is my God. Do you think that Thomas felt like he was missing out any longer? If that was even the case to begin with for the previous eight days, not a chance. And until you come to the place that Thomas experienced in verse 28, you'll never be satisfied either. Never. Augustine put it succinctly in his well-known prayer, we are made for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Thomas, by verse 28, had been brought there by the divine Holy Spirit. He has no room anymore for a domesticated deity. Jesus isn't a tribal savior who just walked the streets of Palestine and is a, a good Messiah for a few people. No more domesticated deity. He is Lord. He is God. There's no more negotiating. There's no more blame shifting. There's no more what ifs. There's no more notions of, I wonder if he cares about me, if he really cares about me. All that has to bow down at the reality that the man who died three days before is now standing in front of him. The lordship of Jesus has been embraced by Thomas at this point and it cannot ever be undone. He is now Thomas's greatest treasure for time and for eternity. Thomas has an instant resignation in this moment. When he makes his profession of faith, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my God. And here's the resignation. Jesus can from this moment forward do with Thomas whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, wherever he pleases, and for whatever purpose he pleases. Jesus is God. Thomas is no longer at the helm of the ship of his life. When you meet the risen Jesus, when you put your faith in him, you will know so because you're done negotiating with him. You're not drawing lines in the sand and saying, Jesus, you can come this far, but no further. You can have control of X amount, but not the other portion. One option for saving faith. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. How is it with you in Christ? Until you surrender to the all-wise purposes of Christ, you're going to find a lot of reasons to complain and to doubt. Maybe Thomas was doing that for eight days. Maybe he got sick of hearing other people talk about their experience with Jesus. But when you place yourself in the hands of him who rose from the dead, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, you will finally be at rest. You'll no, no longer need the approval of man. No longer be controlled by the experiences of other people. Living their life is no longer your priority. Old generations used to say, keeping up with the Joneses. You don't care about that anymore. Your priority becomes Christ's life being lived through you. If he's alive and you give him your life, then it's his life in you now. You're not your own anymore, Galatians 2. You're bought with a price. Christ lives in you. The life you now have in the flesh, you live it by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You're a 1 Corinthians 6 person when you put your faith in the risen Jesus. This is what my Lord and my God looks like. I have been bought with a price. I am no longer my own. I exist to glorify God in my body, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 
It's not lost on me that Jesus showed up on two consecutive Sundays, and I don't want to make too much out of this, but Resurrection Day, appearance number one, the following Sunday, eight days later, that's a colloquial way for the first century to say the next Sunday. There's a week at the beginning of John's gospel. There's a week at the end of John's gospel. Jesus is the creator, and he's the recreator. All this shows the glory of the risen Christ. It's not lost on me that the risen Jesus shows up two consecutive Sundays. I take that to indicate at least that Jesus would love to show up for you right here, right now, on this Sunday, gathered with his people, this Lord's Day, this Resurrection Day. If you don't want to miss out on meeting the risen Jesus, I have one concrete application for everybody today. Don't skip the gathered assembly of the saints on Sunday because that's Jesus' favorite place to show off his resurrected glory. Finally, I said something about Thomas being a missionary. The focus shifts. Verse 29, it's the last verse, don't miss it. Jesus is pursuing the many. Jesus said to Thomas, blessed because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Thomas was in a situation where his faith was substantiated by his sight. Jesus even expressed in verse 29 that Thomas's faith was predicated on seeing Jesus alive from the dead. You've seen, you believed. Pretty solid reason to believe, wouldn't you say? And I've heard people, and there may be some among us today, who would say, well, yeah, good for Thomas. If Jesus would just walk in the room right now and show up to me, then I would believe too. Seeing, he believed. That's a really good reason to believe. If you see for yourself and you don't believe, that actually requires more faith than what Thomas had. If Thomas would have saw him and not believed, that would have been more faith, and it would have been wasted faith. Thomas became a believer when he touched the body of the risen Jesus, and he heard Jesus summon faith out of Thomas in himself. That makes perfect sense. You might be thinking, well, Thomas didn't have the best order of events. He was left out of the first appearance of Jesus to his friends, and he heard them talk for a week about what they had experienced with him, but at least eventually he saw Jesus. At least he touched his risen body. Sure would be nice if Jesus would do something like that for me, then I would believe in him too. But have you ever simmered your soul on the end of verse 29? Blessed, more blessed. Happy are they who did not see and yet believe. Jesus is conveying the truth that there's something sweeter to the soul than what Thomas experienced on this side of eternity. And that is walking by faith and not by sight. That's the message that the New Testament apostles cannot get out of their mouth. They never again intimate, you should have been there. The men God used to write the New Testament, most of them were in this room on this day. They saw the risen Jesus, and not one time do they even insinuate, well, stinks to be you, you should have been there. Rather, they continually say things like this. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Does that sound like my Lord and my God? And you'll be saved too. The apostle Paul wrote that. He was an apostle untimely born. I believe he saw the risen Jesus. Damascus, desert of Arabia. That same Paul keeps saying things like, walk by faith and not by sight. 
Peter was in the room that day. He saw what Thomas saw. He touched what Thomas touched. He heard Jesus say, I believe it could be rendered this way. More blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And then Peter wrote a sentence like this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. This is the real blessing. This is the way the gospel's permeating the whole world. The same Holy Spirit that opened the eyes of Thomas after he touched the risen body of Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that is at work in this room right now as we are exalting the risen Jesus. You can go from dead in your trespasses to being that more blessed person according to Jesus. Walk by faith and not by sight. I close with some application thoughts. I want you to imagine a scene that's coming really soon in your life. You may be tempted to feel like Thomas. Here you are at whatever age and all the experiences and hardships you've been through, all the suffering loss, all the being left out, all the sadness. And maybe like Thomas, you feel like Jesus forgot all about you. You can see him doing wonderful things for a lot of other people, but deep down you wonder if he really loves you. At least does he love you enough to give you an opportunity to draw near to him, to hear his voice, to know his blessing? I think we all go through times and seasons like that in our walk with the Lord. Dark night of the soul or something like that. But I want to talk to those who believe on Jesus for just a moment. Those who would call themselves Christians. Who would say, Jesus is my only hope in life and death. He is my Lord. He is my God. God has a purpose in the prolonged days of wondering if he forgot about you. He hasn't. In fact, he's already arranged a day when you're going to get something better than Thomas got. Thomas touched the body of the glorified Jesus in a non-glorified body. You're going to touch the body of the glorified Jesus in a glorified body. All the waiting, all the eight days or 80 days or 80 years is not for naught. Jesus is arranging a meeting with you when you're going to see his lovely face with glorified eyes. Maybe you can't see it now, but one day soon you're going to be unable to unsee him in his risen glory illuminating the new heavens and the new earth. There will not be a sun there and there will never be a nighttime, but the beaming brightness of the radiant glory of God in the face of Christ will make heaven one eternal daytime. But I do believe that the brightness of the Father's glory radiating from the face of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit will be set to the perfect luminosity for you to be able to always see the prince in his hands and the mark in his side. It won't blind you from seeing the gospel emblems. It will highlight and accentuate the gospel emblems. You see, when Jesus got up from the dead, he took that human body with him that he did not have in eternity past. And when you see him and you hold him and he embraces you, then 
Not only will you not sin and not only will you not have a capacity to sin, but your joy and peace will be elevated to its maximum capacity only with an ever-increasing ability to enjoy Him more. No more dejection, no more despair, no more feeling left out, no more feeling forgotten, realizing everything He did was for a purpose. He'll be the center of your ever-increasing joy in the coming eternity. Obviously, I'm only talking to Christians and those who are non-Christians may think this sounds like sci-fi or make-believe, kind of imagination. Maybe it does feel like a long time for you, eight days, 80 days, 80 years. I want to remind you all of something who believe. Your whole life is a little vapor. Really soon, you're going to say, light, momentary affliction produced an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's not doing you wrong to order your steps the way they're ordered. Feeling like other people have more experiences with Him, grace grows best in the winter. He's doing something subterranean in your soul. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on things unseen, eternal things. An early church calendar has these words. 3rd July, St. Thomas pierced with a lance in India. The Syrian church tradition specifies that on 3rd July, 72 A.D., The acts of Thomas were that he was martyred by spears in Millipore, India. Pastor Nathan and I were right beside that geographic spot about a month ago. And the gospel of Jesus is alive and well in India in 2022. How did it get there? Because the man who didn't meet the risen Jesus had an inflection point where he couldn't stop talking about the risen Jesus. And he spent the next four decades of his life or more going to the far reaches of the earth to tell more people about the gospel and glory of Jesus. Then what happened? No tragedy. No tragedy. He was lanced with a spear, how fitting, for the man who had put his hand previously in a spear mark in the side of his Savior. I wonder if when he got to heaven they compared wounds. Tradition tells us that he spent his life on earth trying to take as many people with him to meet the glorified, risen Jesus with him. No matter what you're walking through, no matter how dark the days may feel, I guarantee you Thomas would say, light momentary afflictions producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparisons. So set your sights on the eternal Jesus and take as many people with you from now to then as God will allow you to tell because you will soon touch the wounds in his hands as he welcomes you across the threshold into his glorified presence. And then you'll know he never forgot about you. He never left you out. He ordered your days 
so that you could be satisfied in him and so that you could point others to the fountain of his satisfying fullness. Have you ever said to Jesus, by faith, my Lord and my God? Here at Grace Church, we want to be like Thomas. We want to take as many people with us to meet the glorified Jesus as we can. And so if you've not yet believed on him, I have a small word for you. This is what you need. You don't need any other person's experience. And you can't live for Jesus through another man's experience. You don't even need Thomas's experience. As Charles Spurgeon said, he was so worried about a shadowy Christ. Spurgeon said, I cannot know Christ through another person's brains. I can't love him with another man's heart. I can't see him with another man's eyes. I'm so afraid of living in a secondhand religion. Lord, save us from a borrowed communion. I must know him myself. Oh God, let me not be deceived in this. I must know him on my own account. That's what you need. I want you who believe on Jesus to just pray that the Spirit would accompany these final words. God arranged Thomas's despairing week to prepare him to never miss out on the most important moment of all. I believe he's working in your life to bring you to this moment. He's working through all your losses and all your sadnesses He's working through everything that you thought you missed to open your eyes to see he's been arranging the whole script to bring you to himself. Instead of feeling that you've been, been left out of the love of God, can you now see that he has been graciously and tenderly and winsomely bringing you your entire life to a moment he arranged to believe upon him now, to turn from your sin now, to believe that Christ will give you peace now, that he will satisfy you in himself now, that he will take away the barrier of your sin between you and your God now, if you will but by faith thrust yourself on the risen Jesus. He's the treasure that your heart has longed for this whole time, and he will not turn you away if you will simply come to him right now. And if you do, I don't want to sell you a bill of goods. I don't want you to think that you can build a house and halfway through realize, as Jesus said, you didn't have money to finish the rest of it. If you come to him now, you will spend your life seeking to tell others about his glory so that they can come with you to touch him too. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would cause us to fix our eyes on the risen Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.